Aalto University Podcast. This is Club Richards. I'm Tommy Coppinen and today I have a guest, Lara Riffle. Hi Tommy. Welcome. So nice to have this. Um, uh, how are you doing? Where are you now? I'm very fine. I'm I'm in home office today for the podcast recording, so it's quiet. But I'm I had a great week, so I'm pumped with energy today. Great. So uh, somewhere close to Karlsruhe, I guess. Yes, actually, yeah, we know each other only via digital format. So yes, I'm living in Karlsruhe, working in Karlsruhe. I'm working at the University Cultural Institute of Technology. So yes, this is where I am. Excellent. Hey, um, can you please share to listeners uh, more about yourself and about your background? How did you end up to Karlsruhe? And uh, uh, yeah, how? Yeah, actually, I was studying industrial engineering at the KIT in the bachelor's and master's. Then I sticked to the KSRI, the Cultural Service Research Institute, for my PhD now. So now I'm a PhD student. I'm researching human-computer interaction, and I'm very much having fun there. Great. How do you? Um, you mentioned human-computer interaction. How do you? Um, what do you think? Like, um, is human and what is computer these days? Uh, because they are kind of getting mixed and people are using computers and they are, you know, are we still having humans or is it always human with a computer? We are definitely having humans and I think humans will be important in the future as well. So we are beings that are capable of feeling, having intuition, gut feelings, so to say. But of course we are supported by computers, by machines, by information systems, call it as you want it. But these are just tools for helping us, for making our lives easier, for supporting us. And I mean, imagine now or after the COVID crisis, we could not have done any lectures. We couldn't have collaborated for our paper if it hadn't been for computers, for some technology that supported us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, we we were co-supervising master's thesis over two, basically, <laughs> and then yes. co-writing a paper which got accepted to design science research conference. And this is amazing. Uh, hey, about design science, uh, in this episode, I would like to really take a deep dive and hear uh, about your thoughts about uh, design and design science and um so can you share to listeners why why design and design science are needed in this world yeah actually what i appreciate very much about design science research is that at least in my community which is the information systems community it is a method that ensures that something useful a useful artifact is created and this usefulness is in terms of being useful or or of benefit for the human user. So you could say it's somehow something like a human-centered approach. At least it thinks about the human user afterwards. It's important to evaluate what you're creating, to think about 
human decision processes, human information perception while you create your system, your technological artifact. This is why I really think it's needed to ensure that you do not only think about the computer, the technology, but also about the human user. Mm -hmm. So how how does it go? Uh, What are the typical kind of steps that you do there? Is it like um, you need to ensure that there is a kind of big enough uh, user group uh, that you are dealing with and uh, when you're doing the design science research? Actually, it's not really a linear process. But that's also very interesting about design science research in IS. It's um, yeah, an iterative process. The key is that you have a design cycle, a, re- a relevant cycle, and a rigor cycle. So these go parallelly with each other. And one is ensuring uh, that you really solve a problem, the relevant cycle, that is important for people. And the other one, the, uh, the rigor cycle, ensures that you're, well, building your artifact based on knowledge, based on something that is already there so that you really ensure that you take care of, well, the knowledge base that researchers or practitioners before you have created. And so, yes, this is really the process. And of course, there is some kind of, well, you could not really say linear process, but there is a structure to it, which which makes it so interesting also for junior scholars or for teaching, because it's such an a great research paradigm that can be easily understood, but is so powerful. Mm. How, how do you think, um, hey, thanks for sharing that. I, I was just thinking about the, because I mean, you mentioned artifacts and uh, often if you look around us and uh, what are kind of the better artifacts or better software or tools or mobile phones, anything that is designed. So, um so one key uh, thing seems to be simplicity. It's simple to use. It looks simple. It can still be very powerful or should be powerful, right? So how do we, how do you think, how do we, can we even, can we ensure simplicity through design science research or, or is this something that is, <laughs> is mm. you know, unsolved problems still or what do you think? I'd say, from my point of view, I'm not the perfect expert on design science research, but from my point of view, simplicity is not the overarching goal. So, of mm. course, when you start your project, you set yourself a goal, a, something you want to achieve. It could be improving the user experience. It could be simplicity, but it could also be quality or, well, utility in some well, abstract mm. sense. And when you evaluate what you have created, um, this is the thing that you look out for. And just like to make it a little bit clearer, an artifact not necessarily is a technology artifact. An artifact can also be some kind of a new method that you develop. It can be a taxonomy for classifying, I don't know, anything. So it can be a software artifact. It can be a hardware artifact. Mm. That's a nice thing about design science research as well, that the artifact can be anything. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah, I really like that. So um, so actually the goal might be that, well, this is a, this is a complex challenge or complex problem, and uh, now we want to have something very powerful. It doesn't perhaps even need to be so super simple to use if it's for experts, right? 
So it just needs to be powerful. And through design science research, we ensure that it will be powerful. Great. Yeah, great. Hey, um, what do you think, um, um, as a follow-up uh, question, I mean, there is so much discussion now about AI. I mean, I, I was just checking Google Trends uh, <laughs> and uh, June 2022, AI went like from, there is this scale from zero to 100 in the Google Trends and uh, it went from 25, 30 to 100 in in few days, for a few days uh, mid-June. So, so there is a lot of interest um, and of course it has been a steady growth. I mean, there is all these car manufacturers are in, including AI in their in the systems and um, and um, a lot of automation factories are more and more automated. So um, how do you see it? What are you know, kind of because all this AI and automation is freeing up uh, people to do other tasks, which is, of course, challenging. Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly it's challenging because now the big question is, like, what are these other tasks? Are they enough, these other tasks for all people? Of course, there needs to be enough tasks because, I mean, we, we need to um, live as a society. But how do you see what are these other tasks and uh, what are the future skills needed to do those tasks? And that's a difficult question, I think. It always depends on the perspective. But I think these other tasks that, well, people are freed up to do are those tasks where we as humans have our strength. Those that, are, that can't be automated. Those that maybe need intuition. Those that need well, a feeling for other people, empathy, maybe. Because when I now talk to you, I can somehow read in your face how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. I can hear it in your voice. And that is something that is at the moment very hard to teach AI to learn Mm -hmm. or to recognize. So I think these are tasks where humans have their strengths and those are the ones that will pertain to them. But what is also very interesting is rather than thinking about these tasks are done by humans and these are done by the AI, thinking about the collaboration of human and AI, how can they work together? How can they, well, share their knowledge? Okay, it's hard to say knowledge Mm. of an AI, but Mm. how can they be, well, combined into systems that together reach an even better goal than each of ones uh, could reach alone? Mm. I really love that. So by... um been using this sentence. I can't remember where did I first see it. I think over social media, but it's like it was saying like human is more um, well, human with AI is more powerful than just human, and I think that is so beautiful. Yes, idea. Um, how do you? Is it like uh, you mentioned empathy, but um, an intuition? Um, how do you see the roles of, uh, I think uh, these future skills include things like creativity, collaboration, yes, communication, definitely. critical thinking. Um, and you mentioned that, I mean, we did uh, uh, supervise a student over, over mm-hmm. uh, digital means. So, so computers actually enabled us to communicate, so improved our communication 
I mean, possibilities to communicate. Mm. But how about other things like, let's say, creativity, um, critical thinking? How how could um, AI or computers help their humans? What do you think? Mm, maybe they could take a facilitating role, kind of spark a discussion, provide ideas for tools that foster creativity. I mean, there are several tools that can help with creativity. Let it be some kind of brainstorming, just thinking hats methods. So this knowledge about the tools that can help humans be more creative could be well supported or provided by the AI. But I, mm. they or maybe AI could like, like a human facilitator or we as educators sometimes, we provide a new piece of information, a new thought to spark a discussion. So I really see the AI more in the role of an, a facilitator, an enabler that might start the discussion in a new direction, but not as the, well, the ones being creative themselves. Mm, that's a great, great idea. I was just thinking all the templates that, uh, I mean, I, I'm sure we both have been using uh, mm -hmm. this kind of agile lean methods where it's like, okay, how could this be useful for this user group, right? right. And uh, so AI, AI could be understanding that, okay, well, now they have already ideated all this and they have narrowed down perhaps the idea space to to focus on on making one idea kind of kind of closer to be reality and then asking these spar sparring questions like, okay, well, okay, sure, but what is the user group for this? Yes. That's a really, really great. Yeah. Hey, we should build that. But, or some of the listeners, I don't know. <laughs> or perhaps yes. it's already built. I don't know. There's all, a lot of research about that. So companions in discussions in the professional context as well. Mm, yeah, there is um, all these chatbots as well. I mean, the, it's it's kind of disparing questions. Well, we have um, we have made uh, use of some of the chatbot uh, technologies to um, kind of uh, starting from knowledge base and then understanding okay what people might be interested in, then providing the knowledge. But this sparring or questions is, uh, I think, a next level thing. True communication. About critical thinking, what do you think? Is it like, because we started to talk about design science research, and I think you mentioned something super interesting, like, like that in design science research, we should take into account all the existing research as well. So that's mm -hmm. critical thinking, isn't it? Like, okay, well, look what this, I mean, this has been basically done, but these are the things that we should take into account. So could AI aid us also in that respect, right? So you are ideating, you are designing something, you are creating an artifact, and then AI is like, hey, take a look at this article. So. Well, I see critical thinking or what you call critical thinking as well as looking beyond your own discipline. And I mean, there's so much research out there in many, many disciplines. I mean, I'm an IS researcher, but there's also marketing research, management research. There is medical research, completely different or sometimes completely different than what I do. But still, mm. there might be analogies in your 
problem to some other problem that has been solved in another discipline. But you as a human, I think it's very, I'd say you can't know everything, but an AI can process much bigger amounts of information and data. So the AI maybe could, well, point you to another area or another discipline that might have similar problems where you could get inspired or you could have a look at to maybe find something that helps you solve your problem. That's a, I, I absolutely love that idea. We, I, I don't know, Lara, if I mentioned, but uh, we had this uh, book project that we just submitted uh, one week ago to Palgrave uh, with Mika Lehtonen and Laura Sivula. So Laura Sivula is uh, head of summer school in Aalto and mm-hmm. Mika J. Lehtonen is a uh, design professor in, in Rikko University in Japan. So it's actually called uh, Designing Across Disciplines. <laughs> So we, we had like 12 chapters uh, from um, uh, synthesis chapters as well from very different disciplines, but with the idea that you can design, use design, you can kind of move uh, ideas from one discipline to another and also have this kind of overarching uh, design ideas over or across disciplines. So I think it's <laughs> so important. It's also what I do in my research. I'm an information systems researcher mm-hmm. that is trained in industrial engineering. But in my research, there are used so many theories and so much knowledge from the psychology. I mm-hmm. think that is something that really enhances our research, looking beyond your own discipline, learning from other disciplines, but which makes it also very hard because you have to, well, get used to different areas and learn how mm-hmm. things function. Mm, absolutely, but isn't that um, I, that's that's great? So industrial design, psychology, and then information systems. Um, what do you, I've been thinking about this a lot, but um, but what do you? How do you see it? Is it like um, if we if we take um, methods and approaches and and knowledge, if you like, from different disciplines? Isn't it, um, or what do you think? Is it um, a way to ensure that um, the end result is rather unique? Because if you if you if you happen to be the first one ever that is taking, you know, some ideas from psychology and then applying them to information systems and UX research. Yes, I think you're right. I've not not I've not thought about it as. Be- creating something unique, but more of, well, what do I need to solve my problem? What do I need to make the interaction between humans and machines more exciting to enhance the user experience, to make it less exhaustive? So I thought, okay, what do I need? Oh, well, I need to know something about how do humans function, you could say. So how do they think? How do they, well, process information that they perceived? So I did not really have in mind creating something perfectly unique that is special and innovative. It just happened because I tried to find a solution for the problems that I yeah, mm. found. That's, that's so much better way of putting it. I really like that. So, so not kind of trying to have the goal immediately of something unique, but just exploring and being adventurous and uh, experimenting and uh, yeah, I really liked it. Um, uh, yesterday, actually, I was recording, uh, which will show up in the 
season five now uh i think um before this episode so tanya reveal is an artist who was actually talking about the same thing so kind of not trying to add trying to have a success or some uniqueness as a goal but just experimenting and exploring different opportunity options and uh, then the result might actually suddenly be unique yes. be very identifiable and i really think you so i enjoy it i have fun doing this research and i think that is what gives me the energy to be creative as well because i'm not limited by my discipline or something or i'm not limited by thinking well or better to say i'm allowed to explore and see whether it helps me and if if it doesn't i have learned something and then mm. i let it set aside and try something new to reach my goal that's great that's great i mean that's perhaps you are in the uh now we are in the core of research and 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 like like it, it should start from these questions like what if i you know use these approaches in this discipline and what if and then the end result might be that okay well it didn't work out but then we move on right mm -hmm. absolutely um love that um hey we started to think about uh and talk about future um what if we have a time machine and we go to i don't know 30 years from now 20 52. What do you think? How 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 will the world look like? Will we recognize the world? What do you think? It's so funny. I have to laugh a little bit. This morning I saw the bachelor project of a friend of mine who's an artist. And he created a dystopian future where everything was well just destroyed. But I don't like from my perspective, I see the future very positively. I I think that when Like I'm still, I'm human computer interaction researcher. So I, I obviously think that there are computers, machines that make our lives better, that help us, that help us achieve our goals more efficiently and also with better experience. So I think at the moment, sometimes we, we have tools and machines that can help us already, but sometimes the experience isn't that good at the moment but in the future with all the opportunities that are provided by machine learning and by the sheer amounts of data that we have we can use this to create even better experiences and i think well it's always you said 30 years in the into the future there i think there might be already like real robots in our everyday life it mm. at the moment if you put a robot next to me as a colleague that would be weird for me But I think in 30 years, it's just normal that there is some kind of machine next to you and taking over the stuff that this machine can do better than I can. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I really... Uh, but one question I, I, I was thinking, um, will we, what do you think, will we recognize um, robots? And I'm just um, thinking about the mobile phones already now, right? I, I would I would argue that not all people really realize how much they are using AI and automation when they are, you know, using their favorite uh, social media tools. And uh, there is so much, you know, recommendations going on and, you know, recommending what you should look next. And but, but is, will this be even harder in the future, like recognizing 
when there is a human and when there is a computer. You know, this famous Turing test, right? So do yes. you recognize? It's a very good question. And I think it also depends somehow on the regulations. I mean, there are two points to it. Today, we already sometimes have the means to create some kind of like these deep fakes where you do not recognize whether it's human or yeah. machine, at least it voice. But also, on the other hand, there's this, this theory or this effect called the uncanny valley effect, where humans perceive something that is like a machine that is too human-like, but not perfect, as bad, some kind of like some, they just, we as humans just notice it with our intuition that there is something a little bit wrong. It could be a 99% perfect robot or something, but it might be some words that it uses, some gestures it makes that we Mm. notice it's not human. But we as humans, I think we see transparency. It would be some Mm. kind of, uh, is it? It's not really fairness. It's just like the transparency that we are not interacting with another human. So I think that legislation or regulations will go in a direction where it has to be apparent that we are now interacting with a non-human being. Mm, that's a that's a really great point. I I remember we were doing some research by by about these uh, voice controlled interfaces. And um, that was when I was still in these startups and uh, we were thinking how to employ these technologies. But uh, then one interesting research was saying that people are also very disappointed when they think that they are talking to a human and then they at some point realize that, no, this guy doesn't understand me. <laughs> yes. And it, it's actually a computer. So it's even better to be recognized that, okay, well, this is a clearly a computer that can help you but nothing else right yeah there's research indicating that you're much more forgiving if there is a machine because you know it's still a machine it's it's programmed so it sometimes cannot understand you but of course if i talk to you now and you just Mm -hmm. don't understand me i think okay why doesn't he understand me does he want to because as a human you are capable of understanding my words absolutely yeah that's so great um, insight. How uh, just thinking, um, you know, yesterday, you, I don't know, is there are there these uh, robots delivering food uh, from shops to people in Karlsruhe or in Germany? Not that I would know about it. At least not in Karlsruhe. Yeah, because we we have it in um, in the campus area and in in oh. Espo Helsinki. Yeah, so, so they are. It's um, it's a. Uh, Company who is uh, which is um, um, this is a service uh, by one one of the chains um, big chains uh, in Finland. Um, so there are tens and tens of these robots all the time running around in the campus area and also in other parts of kind of nearby um, areas. And um, it's a bit crazy because I mean if you go by bike. Or food, they are. They can be suddenly like two or three of them, and uh, you have to avoid them. And uh, then they stop, and uh, they kindly wait until there is no cars, and then they pass the street. And uh, you know, yesterday I was having a having a chat uh, with my team member, close to like five of them, 
And then suddenly, clearly, one of the robots sneezed, like a two. <laughs> I was like, what is happening? So our theory is that there is some human behind there. Ah, that is controlling that, it, and giving is, it its voice. Exactly. So, for example, if there is some uh, some challenge, and I heard about these challenges, like like sometimes they are stuck in a traffic light, they don't understand, you know, traffic lights so easily, and then they can ask for help. But there is the human voice, human operator asking for help. So, um, you know, I was thinking just yesterday that, or we were thinking that, okay, well. Did uh, it actually listen to us? Is there like microphone and the speaker? It was so strange because this robot was sneezing and then ran away immediately. <laughs> I was like, wow. Yeah, I can so, imagine that it's so strange. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of, we were just talking about, you know, this kind of, can we recognize uh, an AI, that it's an AI? But what if it's like this kind of crazy combination? You don't really know what is it? Is it yeah. like partially controlled by human or yes. completely autonomous? And yeah, I sometimes feel strange. the same when I use chatbots on some company website. Sometimes I have the impression that I start texting with a bot because the mm. answers are somehow well prescripted. But then at some point when I have the feeling, I'll get the feeling, okay, we do not get to the solution. Sometimes the The tonality changes, something changes, and you, you feel that something is different. It could be a human, but mm. to be honest, when I think I interact with a bot, I leave out all the, the politeness. I mean, it's a machine. Why should I say thank you or something to a yeah, machine? Why should yeah. I formulate it as, as polite as I can? But for a machine, it's much easier to understand if I just like use commands or something. So that mm. feels really, really weird. Mm. What do you think? Um, yeah, that's you mentioned. Um, uh, you know, like how? Why should we be polite? But uh, what do you think? Uh, like there was this uh, Google's AI engineer who announced like a few weeks ago that uh, he thinks that Google's AI is conscious. <laughs> what do you yeah. think about this? I mean, is it like uh, if if the if it's conscious? I mean, perhaps it's. It has emotions, and uh, if you are more polite to it, perhaps then you get better service. Or, I mean, what do you think about it? Is it conscious or? <laughs> yeah, we've discussed that a lot. I think there, like you mentioned, two aspects of it. I think, to be honest, that of course this Google engineer or this Google technology is very, very advanced. But I'm sure it does, does not have any consciousness. I think it's more kind of, it's called a self-fulfilling prophecy something. So the engineer that programmed it and trained it, um, the, the machine might have learned about him a lot and learned mm. maybe what he probably expects to hear. So because it was such a close and long time interaction and training, the machine could collect a lot of data about him and could anticipate what kind of answer he wanted. So, yes, but you're, I mean, you mentioned if it could make interactions more enjoyable if the machine had some kind of emotions or feelings. And I think, mm. yes, it up to a certain degree or extent providing or giving machines some kind of emotions or 
human likeness. I mean, it's all about human likeness. I mean, mm. is it already emotions if I put an emoticon, an emoji in a message? Somehow, yes, because we as mm. humans, we express our emotions. Is it a smiling face? Is it a crying face? This is already some kind of emotion, but still it's not the same as, well, changing your voice to show empathy or something. So yes, I think some kind of human likeness helps improve the experience, but consciousness will not be reached soon. Okay, that's, uh, that's a great, great point. Um, just to f- follow up uh, IDR question, what do you think, um, um, I mean, now, now it's um, at least mostly as far as, as we know, um, these models are trained or parametrized by humans. So when, when um, they create AI and machine learning, these this different approaches. But uh, what do you think um, will happen if the computer will start creating these training models herself or himself, itself? I don't know. <laughs> what is the chain? Uh, what is the... Um, are they, I don't know if they have sex, uh, you know, like if they have male, female, then other, yeah. or are they animals? I mean, that's, that's another, another question. But what do you think if, if it starts to um, create these training models itself? And uh, then what if, I mean, can there be a future where suddenly it's conscious? What do you think? Almost like evolution. Yes. To be honest, I'm not an expert on that. I can't answer that question. I have actually not even thought about that very much because for me, I try to think about what I can influence. So this is yeah. also why my, my research is concerned with, well, human-centric design of these AI-based systems, but more in a mm. not-too-distant future. And I'm not trying, I try not to make any statement about what happens if machines, well, train themselves? It's hard yeah, for me to answer. Yeah. I think it's better to say nothing about it because I just do not know. I do not know. <laughs> and I'm not yeah. even sure if I think that could be possible. But I mean, mm. there are a lot of experts on AI that say this is possible or not, but I, I haven't made yeah. up my mind about it. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. We should we should um, kind of look at the what, what is possible also in the in the very near future but what it, what I'm um, I'm just thinking aloud now that um, that it's uh, it might be even very hard for us to understand whether a machine is conscious really or not because what if it's really conscious will it tell us I mean <laughs> well, why would it tell us I mean if Google's AI having all the you know knowledge about human history and and I mean of course from the web and and all the databases why would it even tell us perhaps it's uh, you know kind of pretending to be more simple than it is actually mm-hmm. but anyways this is of course all philosophy and, and speculation but i just i think very very super inspiring to think about the about definitely. the future and, yeah definitely and i'm always na- maybe even naively optimistic but i somehow always think there is some kind of emergency button to turn it off or emergency something programmed into the machine, some kind of very mm. basic coding that prevents machines from becoming human, too human-like or mm. well, even developing a consciousness and developing beyond the boundaries that we mm. have allowed it to develop. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely agree. There is this um, 
um, research uh, about explainable AI, meaning that I like, okay, well, if you have, if you make a decision as an AI, then you should explain to humans, like, why did we make this, um, this decision? Um, it's because a lot of AI has been traditionally like black box. I mean, you just mm-hmm. get out what it, what is there, but I, what if it would explain that? Okay. Well, this is why I recommend you to take this route with your bike because there is this renovation going on here and you know like really communicating and not just not just giving the navigation route as it is um hey think of uh talking about navigations and uh and thinking of the life as a journey or studies as a journey or anything so um can you share some turning point in your studies or life in your work life anything something that um really made you think differently about, like I said, about learning, about studies, life, work, anything? It's a difficult question, I think. And I think it's not that one event that meant the turning point. But I was used to, well, always giving my best in my studies. I mean, a bachelor's is only a few years. A master's is only, well, it's not so much time. And then I started into my PhD journey with a lot of energy. And I worked a lot. And I wanted to write good papers, do cool research, get to know all the people that I could get to know. And then after some time, you notice, well, you're getting more and more exhausted. You're working the seven days a week, kind of, and you do not allow yourself to rest and not do anything or just like, yeah, not think about your research because it's you can always think about your research. So when that was kind of a turning point when I noticed I have to allow myself more breaks where I just maybe just sit on the balcony or maybe go walking in nature to recharge a bit. Also, I noticed as soon as I started taking more breaks that my creativity came back because I think it's always a balance of faces or hours, whatever, Mm -hmm. that you are creating new ideas. And then there's this phase of execution. I mean, a PhD project is a long-term project and you need these execution phases where you really work on your experiments, you work on your papers with full energy. But then again, you need some resting time, some time to develop new ideas and just like think about side projects, think about something that is fun. And I think that is something very important for me that I learned for myself. Um, For me, it's important to do something that I enjoy, that is fun to go on learning. And that is something that also, like looking back in my studies, is something that I noticed when I had fun, the outcome was the best. So it really goes hand in hand, having fun and learning and de- further developing. I absolutely love everything you say and I absolutely agree <laughs> with everything you say. That's that's so important. And for all the listeners, I take good advice of uh, what Lara just said. Absolutely agree. Yeah, I, I, you know, when you were explaining, I was just uh, remembering one year when I did like 14 publications and that was, I think, a bit too much even. But then uh, next year, it was a bit more relaxed. But then I, I think I had, I was much more creative because I took more breaks. Um, I, I have to share one one story. When I was doing my PhD, uh, there was this um, dance group uh, from Berlin, Germany. 
um, having a great performance, uh, this kind of physical theater performance in the modern art museum, Kiasma in Helsinki. And I was in the, in the audience and that was so inspiring. I mean, and I remember I was taking a break from my PhD writing. I just wanted, okay, I'll just take an evening, uh, you know, free and I'll go to this physical theater. But it was so inspiring that in the break, and it was actually a longer break, it was this kind of bit strange setup, but it's like one and a half hour break between the two uh, shows. And I was selected from the audience to participate in next show as well, kind of the next level <laughs> in the show. And in this one and a half hours, I actually invented the algorithm for my PhD, the cornerstone of the PhD. And I absolutely had no idea how would I do it before the dance performance. So, yeah, but isn't that great? Isn't that something that you can't explain about your brain, how it works? Somehow it's just like that. Exactly. So so we need uh, relaxing times, we need inspiration. And then it's funny because it's then, isn't it even then more productive than if we <laughs> take these breaks? Absolutely. Hey, thanks for sharing that. Um, about, um, about learning, I would like to ask you... Um, What did you learn last time and uh, where did it happen? Was it online or, you know, through a book or from podcast? I mean, now it's a podcast, so perhaps people have learned something from this podcast. But where, what did you learn last time and where? It's an interesting question because I'd say I'm learning all the time. That is what a PhD journey is also for. But it's bits and pieces. I enjoy learning from podcasts about little, let's call it life hacks, how to structure your life, how to maybe also how to structure your calendar that you can put in breaks as well so that it's not overcrowded in weeks like these. And also, I'm a huge fan of learning on the job. So at the moment, the, the biggest thing that is new for me at the moment is data analysis with R. I am not the programming well, professional. Um, I'm not used to all these complicated statistical analysis, but I have so much fun learning it now because it's, it's my data. It's something that I can learn on the job that I can really see progress in. So that is something that I learned and how I learned it is actually I have a book I use YouTube videos. I use interaction with my colleagues and, well, researchers that I know. So it's always different sources. But yes, that's it, actually. Different sources. Mm. I mean, it's a combination of everything that makes it so fun because I think I notice when I'm reading papers week after week, it gets, ex um, well, exhausting. But if I change the format, if I switch between podcasts or some video format some audio format and then again some text format yeah learn more wow hey let's uh let's summarize i mean that was brilliant so um so you have learned r i mean data analysis in r the last time and it's a combination of podcast interaction with colleagues youtube videos texts tutorials perhaps examples yes. in r yes wow i mean <laughs> oh. it. it's a lot <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's, Hearing it from it's you again, it's just a lot. It's a lot, but I mean, I think you uh, just defined uh, like a better design for a course on data analysis, right? So how you actually learn it. 
So it's not just one kind of way, but it's all these different modalities, if you like. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, I, I so connect to that. <laughs> so uh, how, do, how do you think um, in, um, or uh, is it like, uh, this is a kind of, what kind of analysis have you um, now done? And I'm asking this because, I mean, I'm teaching information visualization. A lot of my students are using R and I've been using it a lot myself. Um, but uh, what do you think, uh, what is the... Um, Can you share something like about your latest publication and how did you analyze data there uh, with the R or or are planning to use R for yeah, analyzing? Still in the process, to be honest. So mm. I'm currently diving deep into structural equation modeling to make sense of my data to well test my hypotheses. So yes, it's basically structural equation modeling that I use. Okay, excellent. I I have no idea, but I I thought I know about R, but I don't know about that, so I have to it's Google so it. It's so powerful. So people can do almost everything in R, and when I just like put in data analysis in R in YouTube, I was well so many videos, and I noticed okay, well I have to specify a little bit more. It's so powerful tool. <laughs> okay, yes, I absolutely agree. But structural equation modeling, I have to check it up. Yeah, I've been yeah, great. Thanks, Lara, for sharing. Um, yeah, hey, I have, um, thanks so much uh, for joining me for this episode of Cloud Reaches, Lara. This has been a true pleasure. It's been, you know, great to uh, hear about your insights and thoughts. And I think we all, I mean, listeners and uh, at least me, uh, learned a lot uh, within this episode. And uh, I, have, I have this kind of final question. I'd ask this uh, from all guests of the Cloud Reaches So um, Cloud Reaches podcast is um, is um, obviously like uh, we there is some cloud or dream or online cloud is also online mm-hmm. somewhere out there and now we want to reach out clouds. Um, so who do you think? And it can be a person or organization, anybody uh, or anything. Uh, who who do you think is such a cloud reacher? Somehow trying to reach out something better or something that is not yet here but should be here perhaps you mean people that are that i would call cloud features as well so i have like when you mention cloud features and someone that or something that would fit that description i have two people in mind two women in mind it's lia sophie kramer and verena pausta two german I don't know how to call them because they do everything. They're entrepreneurs. They have their own podcast, the Fast and Curious podcast. I can really recommend that. It's okay, obviously in German. But these are two women that are inspiring. They inspire other people to reach for their dreams, to follow their dreams, to find something that they enjoy doing and try out different things. So they have both started their own businesses, but also they use their skills to empower other people and help them learn. So these are definitely people I would call cloud features. Wow, thanks for sharing. I, Lara, I'll now have something, uh, some new podcast to listen to. So Fast and Curious, was it? Yes, Fast and Curious. They all wow. they started it this year, so... But it's a very nice format, entertaining. You learn a lot. Excellent. And then I learn also more German, right? So Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a way. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Um, thanks, Lara. Let's let's have a... I mean, you are always welcome to 
to new episodes of uh, Club Reachers and of course to Finland one day soon, hopefully. We'll meet also in, in person. I would very much like to. And thank you so much, Tommy, for inviting me to your podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Lara. Um, yeah, this was Club Reachers with Lara Rifle. Tommy Kalpen, see you soon. Ciao.